Brexit, Donald Trump, John Wick. And welcome to episode 60 of the world-famous Tetchboard Zoology Podcast. You mean prod rats? <sighs> Who are you? Uh, yeah. Why do you always take me by surprise with this question? Every <laughs> single time. Because <laughs> you have the memory of an animal that doesn't have a short... Has a, well, I'm going guy a from Memento. I forget his name. Yeah, I don't know either. No. That's okay, because he probably forgot his name, too. And who are you, Darren? Uh, back in the 90s, I was in a very famous TV show. In this episode, uh, we have some news, and we're going to discuss some new science stuff, and we have a lot of cash for questions. But, um, oh, drinking game is in effect, and... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What is that old speckled hen? <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> only an irresponsible idiot would drink while doing a podcast. Um, At nine thirty so, in the morning, I might add, oh, which right. is just okay, too early for anyone. So, apologies that it's been such a long time since the last one. I have a very busy life. I can't speak for John. But uh, no, I'm kidding. John's very. We're both very busy. Yeah. Well, it's been particularly difficult recently because, well, you you had your building work on your house, and now I'm doing building work on our house, and so scheduling t- podcasts time when there's nothing like no really jackhammering or sawing yeah. or whatever is really difficult, and also yeah, just busy. Yeah. Which is why so- we've got 19 cash for questions stretching back to last year. Yeah, it's, it's, tr- it's tricky to keep up. And if you want us to do a better job, well, I guess we just need more money. <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds so horribly mercenary. But uh, yeah, oh, God. okay. Um, should we just go f- straight into the news from the world of news? Okay, news from the world of news. What is news from? What is new in the world of news, Darren? Well, of course, there's so much worthy news that I think we should cover. You probably think we should cover, and our listeners think we should cover. There's too much. So, um, this particular episode, is, should we be celebrating the fact that this episode's 60? Because no. it's like. We don't, um, do, okay. we don't celebrate every 10. Of course we don't. Stupid, stupid me. Okay, we'll get, when we get to 100, that's got to yeah, be a special that's one. That's got to be a special one. Because I listen some other podcasts I listen to, they're on like episode 320 something. And here we are. Crawling. <laughs> anyway, um, there's been, right, so hominins. There's been a stack of really exciting news from the world of fossil relatives of humans this year. We're talking in early July 2017. And, um, okay, so two-minute rule, keep your eye on the clock. Each one of these has got to be in two minutes or less. It better be, because we've got all those cash for questions. Well, exactly, exactly. I'm going to discuss four things, and uh, you may have heard of them. And they're all all really cool. So, okay, number one. 
Homo Naledi is a new South African homonym which was published by Lee Berger and colleagues in 2015 and we did cover it here on the podcast. This really interesting story about this um, multiple individuals, I think more than 15 individuals found in this cave and uh, this story about how they excavated them. They were assumed, Homo Naledi was assumed on the basis of predominantly morphology, that best criterion for judging the geological age of a species. It was thought to be like <laughs> 2 million years old. It was thought to be like an archaic hominin uh, that diverged relatively early in the history of the group. Um, but uh, this was accidentally revealed prematurely by National Geographic, but a, a paper was eventually published by Paul Dirks and colleagues. Um, they used a dating technique, and I, I, I'm afraid I've forgotten which one, but they dated Homo Naledi to between about 335,000 and 236,000 years ago. So a couple of hundred thousand years ago, which puts Homo Naledi into the younger bunch of hominins. So it's contemporaneous with, um, <laughs> well, it's contemporaneous with the, the, the oldest uh, Homo sapiens and species like Homo uh, erectus and Heidelbergensis, uh, etc., um, which is a big deal because it means that an anatomically archaic, proportionally small-brained hominin uh, did persist, was living alongside the bigger-brained, air quotes, advanced uh, sapiens-like uh, species. So that's that's quite interesting, particularly because it fits into this whole view of there being, you know, lots of times in the Pleistocene where there are multiple um, hominin species mm -hmm. contemporaneous. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, hominin is now the term specifically for the human lineage, meaning Australopithecines as well as Homo and a couple of other like human-like general, like Kenyanthropus. And um, would that be everything closer to us than chimps? Essentially, yes. So hominin is the term that in the older literature was called hominids, but during the 70s and 80s it became clear that uh, the basically all of the apes don't belong to a separate lineage from humans. They should be included within hominids, given that we're talking about a group that's like less than, well, you know, less than 15 million years. I oh, don't know, no, a bit more than that. Whatever. Yeah, Whatever. I, I, Okay, two-minute rule. To, Move on. Exactly. If I, that's a big tangent. Right, second thing. Okay, second thing. Um, the, North American in hom the North American hominin record, obviously you're going to exclude Bigfoot here, kind of tongue-in-cheek there. Um, our species is supposed to be about 200,000 years old, and we're supposed to have uh, one or at different points, different populations moved out of Africa, but the out of the main out of Africa movement, I think, is meant to be within the last hundred thousand years. Um, so people aren't supposed to have gotten into North America until is it something? Like, oh God, I've forgotten. It's 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 a few tens of thousands of years ago, right? Yeah. It's at most. Oh God, I want to say. I know there have been claims for 60,000. I'm going to go for 30,000, but even that's too old. Whatever. Oh, God. Can we come back to that? So that would be tens of thousands. But yes, okay. It's something like that, this. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. It's te te as opposed to, yeah, our species is a couple of hundred thousand years old. People get into the Americas within the last tens of thousands of years. Um, well, this new site... Uh, published by Stephen Holen et al. in, in Nature, this uh, Mastodon butchery site, um, they reckon, in California, they reckon puts 
the existence of um, tool using hominins of some kind in Western North America around about 130,000 years ago. So older than the time at which Homo sapiens is meant to have left Africa. So what does this mean? Does it mean that Homo sapiens did actually does actually have like a more complex history and got out of Africa much earlier than people uh, thought? Or is is the butchery site created by another hominin? Is it like another species actually got to North America? It's been suggested in various articles. Um, I'm talking about reputable articles here, not um, yeah, sort of fringe stuff. Uh, it's been suggested that maybe Neanderthals or Denisovans or the Homo erectus even got to North America uh, in the Pleistocene and explains this butchery site. Um, it, it's a huge big deal. If, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, the age has resulted in a phenomenal amount of skepticism, and the main story about this site hasn't been, oh my God, we found ancient evidence for hominins in North America predating anything that everyone's ever ever reliably found before. I should say there are lots of there are loads of claims of like even older evidence of hominins of some kind in the Americas, South America as well as North America, but they're all controversial. Um, this, the main story that, that's been reported on is the scepticism because it, virtually every anthropologist, paleoanthropologist who's been asked has said, nope, I ain't buying it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. <laughs> what do you think about this? Nope. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So, um, and some people say, well, that's reasonable because if you actually look at the the the, the the evidence for butchery on the bones of the um, mastodon and on the, the the tools found at the site, which are like big cobblestones. Some people are saying, well, it could be the result of something else. It could be like, you know, weathering or stones and bones smashing together fortuitously. Um, and other people are saying, well, no, if you actually look at it, it's actually this actually does genuinely look pretty compelling. And if this and if this site were found in Europe or Africa or Asia, and at that age, people would not hesitate to regard it as a hominin butchery site. So, um, yeah, it's it's a big it's a big deal. It's an interesting one. Okay, we've got to move on. Um, that was way more than two minutes. Well, you need stop to take a me drink. Then you supp- you say st- like drink. Yeah. You say stop at two minutes. Um, so I, just I don't know how long two minutes is. I don't have a timer in my head. I don't even have a memory. I know. We, we all we all know. We all know. Yeah. That. But don't there a clock in front of you? There's a clock on my on my laptop, isn't there? On yours? Well, sure, sure. But I don't look at it, and I can't God remember sake. how long ago it was that I. Yeah, it's just it's just all hopeless. Uh, clearly, right. Um, so, are these other hominins really worth discussing? Really quickly, really quickly. Yeah. So I, I just said that our species is meant to be about 200,000 years old. Well, there's a new paper. This is amazing, all this new stuff. Um, Jean-Jacques Hublin and colleagues, this is, I think this was another nature paper. They report some Homo sapiens remains from Morocco. And we're not talking about like a couple of teeth and a, a fragment of parietal bone or something. We're talking about really nice, like complete skulls, beautiful fossils, which establish the presence of what seems to be Homo sapiens in Morocco, dating to about 315,000 years ago. So they're adding approximately another 100,000 years to the longevity of our species. Not really a big deal, given that people have made such 
extrapolations on the basis of other data. Uh, but the fact that, that what seems to be Homo sapiens is in North Africa at that time indicates that Homo sapiens is not exclusive to East Africa, as was thought before, mm-hmm. and um, that it was a more widely distributed species, which when you look at big-bodied primates, big-bodied mammals in general, again, not really a surprise. It's just a, a, a nice additional thing. Number four, finally, Homo floresiensis. How I so hate the fact that these are now called hobbits. I really uh, – is it is it that I'm kind of some boring old curmudgeon? Yep. That, um, Why do you care about that so much? <laughs> I don't care about it that much but because because when you say hobbit, and you obviously think of the creatures from the people from the uh, Lord of the Rings and other books, because of course the first one's called The Hobbit, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, hobbits are like humans. They're meant to. They they live in houses and they wear clothes and smoke pipes and speak and stuff. Whereas, <laughs> it's, yeah, this hominin and they're from the from, Cotswolds, but. I don't think anyone literally thinks that these things were little pipe-smoking things that lived in the fantasy land and fought dragons. I bet they do. I bet you they do. (laughs) That's exactly what people think. They think think of them as, like, advanced um, clothes-wearing distincts, like, yeah... I've forgotten the names of any of the actors who played who played hobbits, but yeah, whatever, Wood. whatever. Okay, maybe, maybe maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe no one has thought. Anyway, so there's been this long, stupid controversy. I don't know if controversy is even the right word. There have been these multiple claims about Homo floresiensis being um, abnormal members of one of the larger bodied hominin species, and it's been claimed, you know, small brain size due to cretinism or microcephaly or something. With those claims, right from the start, you know, they've always been un- basically, I think, unreliable. You know, if, if you actually read the papers, the, the, yeah, it's terrible. Um, there's a bunch of <laughs> going into all the technical details. If you actually look at the anatomical You can't details, go into the details. That's, that's my no. point. I'm trying, no, I'm you trying don't have time. You've already used up two minutes. Okay, well, Debbie argue at our new paper, Journal of Human Evolution, they find support for uh, a, a model which has been supported by, you know, other people beforehand. Colin Groves was big on this. The idea that floresiensis is not a mem- not at all close to erectus and sapiens within the hominin lineage, but in fact is uh, more rootward, closer to things like, well, sort of, of australopithecine grade, right? And I've I've always thought the evidence is pretty compelling. You look at some of the like skeletal evidence, like the configuration of the wrist bones and whatnot. And argue et al. It's a great name to have as a as a scientist working on controversial hominins. Mm-hmm. Argue et al. They they ran uh, analyses involving like cranial morphometrics and postcranial anatomy, and they find Thuringiensis to group with Homo habilis. Now Homo habilis is already a controversial species. Some people say it shouldn't be in Homo anyway. So this is again this is like quite good support I think for this idea that Thuringiensis is of air quotes Australopithecine grade close air quotes. Okay. So. There you go. Four really you know, interesting uh, hominin things that have all been published in the last couple of months here in 2017. So uh, there's tons more news that we should cover, but we ain't going to do it today. Um, moving on. Yeah. So do you want to talk about this Turtles book? Let's just say that it exists. Okay. Turtles as 
There you go, so John can see it, because that's important. Yep, that's Turtles important. as Hopeful Monsters by Olivier Rippel, Origins and Evolution. Um, I'm currently like halfway through it. It's published by Indiana University Press. So if you're interested in turtles and evolution and the, and the history of reptiles and paleontology and whatnot, you will want to buy this book. What I will say, however, is that while I like it, and I'm quite impressed with his uh, his weaving together of the stories of um, our understanding of Evo Devo, turtles, and the philosophy and kind of um, history of paleontological thought and on evolution in general. It's good on those things, but not enough turtles. It's it's, it's too it's it shouldn't be called turtles as hopeful monsters. It should be called my thoughts on the history of evolution because it, there's tons and tons and tons in here about competing models of how evolution is supposed to happen obviously hopeful monsters do you know what hopeful it, monsters are yes it's giving you a clue there in the in the title that it is actually about uh concepts and evolution using turtles as a model right or whatever yeah yeah but, but even so not it doesn't turtles. say turtles everything you ever wanted to know which is what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> it, it set, it so set book not quite on subject that you wanted. Yeah, okay. Exactly. All it right. sets out at the start. He says, he says, I got really interested in turtles and turtles are a big mystery because they're so weird. Mm. And I'm going to show you in this book how a group of scientists used clever wording to dupe other scientists about how turtles might have evolved. That's the sort of what he sets out at the start of the book. So you think, you think, oh, this is gonna be good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna hear all about the turtle wars. Uh-huh. But you don't. <laughs> There's just this bit at the end about what he calls the polka dot turtle. So where he is specifically using words in order to <laughs> to denigrate the work of others. Um, but don't get me wrong, he's a great writer. I'm enjoying the book. It is good. Like I say, if you're interested in evolution and fossil reptiles and or reptiles in general, you should get it. But it's I feel slightly slightly duped. So there we go. Right. Okay. So it's a book about evolution rather more than it's a book about turtles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Okay. News from the right. world of Darren and John. So oh, you don't want to talk about Wonder Woman or no. uh, Spider-Man Homecoming no. or <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy Volume <laughs> 2 no. or um, uh, a bunch of others. I'll uh, tell yeah, you what okay. I do want to talk about. John <laughs> Wick. <me> <laughs> oh, what no. the hell was that? <laughs> you haven't seen the second one, have you? No. Please. No, no. Oh God, thank God. I saw the first one. I don't know why. <laughs> why did I watch that? What? What? You know, you get fooled by a, like a 86% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. You watch the thing and you just think, what did I just watch? I, I, that that whole movie all based around the premise that he was unhappy about his puppy being killed. I just like oh my god, oh my <laughs> that god, puppy wasn't that, that puppy wasn't that. He didn't. He only just got that puppy. He only you know that puppy for a couple of days, and he goes and some. <laughs> it's a terrible film, yeah. but apparently a very successful terrible film, which is why it has a sequel and critically rated. Like just I just do not want, know what's going on in the world. Okay, let's move on because well, that's totally you irrelevant to Tetsu, Really, Brexit, Donald Trump. John Wick. 
Yep. Out oh, of flat and flat earth. <laughs> ivory tower. Out of touch. Okay. Yeah. Right. News from the world of Darren and John. Have you got any okay. news? I've got a lot of news, but let's keep it brief. Yeah. Um, you better what's be. the What's the greatest, most amazing accolade that can happen to you in your life? Uh, if you're in the... That teaching award you got. <laughs> I have to hear a lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> what about if you have a species named after you? <laughs> okay. Yep. That's good too. Uh, yep. Happened for real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know about this? No, I don't know about this. <laughs> so, Joe Corley, who's a regular supporter and listener of uh, our stuff and listener to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Um, uh, I, I should actually I should bring up the paper to. Uh, okay, so. Joe and his co-author named a fish after me. <laughs> Bastards! <laughs> okay, the... the <laughs> so, Joe was tweeting. Now, Joe publishes as John, John J. Corley. The paper is in Journal of Systematic Paleontology. It's a proper paper in a really good journal. Um, John Corley and Jürgen Cruet, which I'm surely pronouncing incorrectly, and I'll drink to that. Mm-hmm. Jürgen Cruet is a is a well known uh, long time researcher on fossil uh, Actinopterygians. Well, Joe Corley works on pycnodonts. Uh, let's just not talk about them too much, but it's a group of um, uh, Mesozoic and Paleogene um, Actinopterygian fishes. Uh, <laughs> the paper is a new pycnodont fish, Scalicovictes naishi. Jeanette Spahnov from the late Cretaceous of Israel, and it's totally for real and legit, and it's a proper paper and everything. Joe was like, have a look at this paper. It might interest you. And I was like, oh, God, I've got another oh, fish, fish paper I've got to look at. And then I, I noticed the new taxon, Scalicovictes naishi, or naishi, however you want to say these things. And, well, I think uh, you like, get to choose. Uh, well, I say naishi. Yeah. And, yeah. I was like, what? Is this some kind of elaborate practical joke? You know, thinking someone had like mocked up a PDF because, you know, people do that sort of thing. Uh, no, it's for real. Derivation of name. Uh, well, Scalicovictes is, is curved scaled fish because of the specific anatomy of its dorsal ridge scales. Um, species name. The name of the new species is dedicated to Dr. Darren Nash, who's currently writing a book on the entire vertebrate fossil record and is prolific in publishing research on dinosaurs pterosaurs and marine reptiles amongst many other groups of animals groups of tetrapods he's also an amazing person the best in the world is what it says so there like, you go oh, so, oh wow so yeah uh, and the this um there was a lot of action on twitter and it didn't really say that last line um uh-huh uh, it's been reconstructed by some uh, good paleo art people already P- possibly the most illustrated pycnodontiform <laughs> pycnodontomorph pycnodont fish Already, so there you go, the niche fish. Well, well it's done. Thing. Yeah, I like I like the, the fact that it's a fish. I think that's the best. <laughs> that's the best bit. Uh, well, I hate to say it, but oh god, yeah, fish. Um, they're not. Maybe, maybe they're not so bad after all. <laughs> oh no, no, they are. Yeah, they're very yes. bad. They're very, very bad. Right. Okay, that's good. Any other news? Um, 
Well, I'll mention briefly the Neo Veneta paper that uh, Chris Barker, myself, and a team of colleagues published in Scientific Reports, which is part of the Nature family of journals. Uh, written about, if you're interested, go and find the Tetrapod Zoology article. Uh, basically, we talk about uh, a giant anastomosing system of um, canals of some kind, neurovascular canals of some kind in the face of the big theropod Neoveneta. And, and what does that mean? Um, in the paper, we, we, we thought that this is most likely to do with the trigeminal nerve. So we thought it was to do with a, a very sophisticated sensitivity, facial sensitivity in this dinosaur and possibly in big theropods in general. Uh-huh. But other, there are other possibilities on the table, including that it's for a giant uh, blood vessel system. But like I say, go to Tetrapod Zoology if you're interested in that. And there's more to come on that story. So tell us about Texas, John. Yeah, I've been to Austin. And two things are interesting in Austin. One's Quetzalcoatlus, which I'm working on. Um, and people should, as, a, as everyone probably knows, Quetzalcoatlus has a a long and troubled history. One Langston, who by all accounts was a great old guy, but sat on Quetzalcoatlus for 30 years, working on it a little bit, uh, working on other things, and never got anything substantial published on it. Well, he died in... 2013, and since then there's been a team of authors getting together a series of papers on Quetzalcoatlus, and we should see, and there, that's in the, well, it's it's wrapping up now, so the papers should be submitted soon, and we should see them probably later this year or early next year. So, still a bit slow, but it is happening. And it is nearing completion. So I'm working on that. I'm illustrating some of the papers. Uh, that's pretty exciting. I'm not sure there's anything really earth-shaking about Quetzalcoatlus that will come out, but the fossils are really nice and 3D preserved and you've got nice joint, joint surfaces and there's a lot of information in them, so that's pretty good. Um, but the really exciting thing in Austin is the Minnesota Iceman. Oh, yeah. Which I saw. Now, unfortunately, they don't let you take photos. Ah. But I took some surreptitious photos. Yeah, good. <laughs> and what I'll do is I'll show you on the screen right here. I might tweet these, actually. Oh, they're just brilliant, Darren. They're just brilliant. I, I think I know what's coming. There's going to be hazy, yeah, okay, useless. Right, so he's showing me a green <laughs> rectangle with green some fuzz on it. blur. <laughs> yeah, so it's in a dark room. Um, and that looks yeah, like it's they, they, encased they, they, in ice. It is encased in ice. Yeah, it's, mm. it's ice block. And since they don't like you take, they don't let you take photos. I had to talk to. I was with Brian Andrus, the, the pterosaur researcher at the time, who's also working on quets. And I had to pretend to be talking to him while I was taking photos. So I couldn't look at it while I was taking photos, and I couldn't let him see that I had my phone out on top of the Iceman. So obviously, not great quality. The Iceman's quite interesting, really, looking at it. It's a good fake. Like, it looks pretty good, but you can't see as much of it as you'd like. Basically, mm. I could you could only really make out, given that it is sort of... Um, what's it called when ice goes sort of whitish? Opaque? Well, I yeah, I mean, it is opaque. Yeah, there might be a word for it. But anyway, so the edges had sort of fr- frosted up, right? 
Right. So you couldn't really see the edges, but you could see the midline and relatively clearly. So you could see its hands, mm-hmm. or one of its hands anyway, and its mouth. I couldn't really see the top of its head, and you could sort of see along its midline. And I couldn't see its feet. So um, how does it compare to... Yeah, the famous photos. It looks the same, right? Um, yeah. You can't see a lot of that, but the details you can see do look the same. And as I say, they... it, looked like, it looks like a good fake. You know, if, I, yeah. if it wasn't some sort of crazy thing... Like you, you are. You, you'd think it was just like if it was some, some ordinary animal, you'd think, well, yeah, that's probably real, right? So uh-huh. I think they're making a mistake not it letting you take photos of it because the photos wouldn't reveal anything mm. which, which is obviously fake. So I don't know why they don't let you. Mm. Like everything today, I kind of think that the more you share, the more people get to hear about it. And seeing a thing in real life is seeing seeing something in someone's Twitter photos is never a substitute. It would make me want to see it more if I know there's something to see. Yep, I would have tweeted about this if I was if I was allowed to take photos. There would be lots and lots of photos on Twitter of me looking at the Minnesota Iceman in the museum that it's in. Um. I got museum you, of the Weird. The Museum of the oh, Weird. Oh, cool. I got you a T-shirt. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was great. Wow. Because I couldn't get a photo. There you go. Oh, cool. Is it, is it big enough? Is it because I'm hugely fat? Is it uh, my size? Yeah, extra, hugely extra fat. It's a large. It's, it's the only one they had. I mean, so. hugely muscular. Muscular, yeah. It's a large. I think, I think it'll fit you. It's relatively big. Yeah. Brilliant. Found um, in a block of ice, it says. Yep. Cool. Um, so that was pretty exciting. And, yeah, as I say, it looks real. Oh, yeah, because, you see, the, the reason I was surprised, I, I shouldn't be surprised, but I didn't expect it to be frozen because the initial photographs of it when Steve Busty is the guy in charge of that museum, when he first obtained it, the first photographs released of the, the actual the Museum of the Weird Specimen – Assuming, I'm pretty sure it's the original, but they showed it as not frozen. So there, there it is, oh, frozen. So they've refrozen it. They've refrozen it. Well, okay. apparently, um, it's see the reason. You know, uh, this this is covered at length in the the, the Tetrapod Zoology articles I wrote about the Iceman. Um, the discrepancies in uh, posture pe- from the different times can only be explained by there being more than one model which doesn't look likely due to in part due to what Bernard Hooverman himself said. He, he knew it really well. Um, or by the fact that Hansen, the original owner defrosted it and refroze it each season. Cause you can't keep ice indefinitely for various reasons. You can't keep thing cold enough to keep it in a block that big. I understand. Um, yeah, so they must have had to keep refreezing it and reposing it. And so the interesting thing is, of course, they know they know what it's made of. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, sorry, do you have, do you have a story there, or are you just saying? No, no. But if they've unfrozen it and frozen it again, then there's no mystery to them, probably. 
Well, no, but I don't think I don't realistically think there's a mystery at all anymore. It's like <laughs> no. apart, apart from a few fringe crazies, no disrespect intended. Uh, like every serious investigator uh, has, has acknowledged this to be a hoax, you know, for a couple of decades now. Yeah. Um, and it's even it's even thought that I mean the whole again this is for those interested please go and read the I, I wrote two long articles that are are a review of the Bernard Hooverman's book Neanderthal the Strange Saga of the Minnesota Iceman um, the the whole the whole background to the story the fact that it's a uh, being taken round the United States in as a carnival show with all these elaborate claims and with all these sort of false stories about its origin um, is exactly what people in the carnival entertainment industry have been doing for, you know, hundreds of years, not just tens of years. Uh, So, yeah. So remind me when it was taken around the States. When was, when was its tour, when were its touring days? The, uh, well, certainly from the late sixties, because Hoovermans and Sanderson saw it in 67, I think. And it was still touring, Possibly as recent as the 1980s. I'm going to say like early 80s. It was it was still um, it was still being taken rounds. And it's even said by some people that so it's Hoovermans and Sanderson look at it in the late 60s and supposedly become convinced it's a real corpse. And they both rush. They they fall out quite badly over this due to differing interpretations. Partly because partly because Hoovermans strange person but he was essentially a scientist um he wanted to um you know publish it properly in a pro- proper journal which he which he did he published in a belgian scientific journal got it out in a real rush there was, you know this journal wasn't peer-reviewed he, he published it in like you know a month of seeing the specimen or something crazy like that whereas sanderson wanted to basically milk it for every penny and write loads of popular articles about it and um, Sanderson was big on promoting it as, um, you know, talking about it on TV shows and everything and making bold claims about it. Uh, he gave it a stupid nickname, called it Bozo. Really, um, uh, it's, uh, and some people actually think that Sanderson knew it was a hoax from the start and possibly even collaborated with Hansen, yep. the, the, the owner, um, but because this was Sanderson's meal ticket, this was, you know... Uh, he he was really you know, an interesting person, but that's how he did stuff. He made a living out of writing about fringe subjects, everything from Bigfoot and Yetis to Atlantis and the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs. And, and as we've said before on the podcast, and as we say in Cryptozoologicon, and as I say in Hunting Monsters, um, Sanderson was actually the originator of lots of these concepts. A lot of key ideas about uh, alien abduction, uh, extraterrestrials, areas where people go missing he called them vile vortices he came up with the idea of the bermuda triangle that stuff all concepts of lake monsters and crypto hominids sanderson was the guy who invented all of that stuff so yeah okay yeah so yeah um interestingly jim cunningham who's always also working on quetzalcoatlus thinks that he might have seen it in the 60s while it was touring Oh really? Yeah. Oh, mm. Well, it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, it it went around lots of like rural state fairs. Yeah. And yeah, any I think things where like county fairs and livestock shows, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he lives near Memphis, so I think he probably saw it around there. I mean, 
if he's right. There were probably other things that were similar to it floating around, I'm sure. Well, that's that's one of the things that first got me... Th- well, not that... Well, 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 yeah, a thing that's always struck me is I know of other carnival shows that have got... Um, uh, Wookie Hole here in the UK has got a... It's, it's got the all the paraphernalia and bits and pieces and kit that belongs to a travelling fair from the you know decades ago from the mid early to mid 20th century they've got things like weird pickled fish and like two-headed lambs and freak chickens and all that stuff all all preserved that, that was originally used exactly in exactly the same way and one of the things they've got is a yeti um suspended in perpetual animation it says and there's this um model of a yeti it's a white furry you know human-like yeti and it's got these sort of looping cables all over it that's meant to be like keeping its body in with injected with some kind of fluid that's sort of keeping it alive but perpetually moribund or perpetually like paralyzed and uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about the history of that whether that's younger than the minnesota iceman or older than i think it's yeah. older than the minnesota iceman but um that shows that this was a you know this was a sort of tradition at the time and obviously i'm talking about a thing in england yeah have um, you seen it not the minnesota iceman no the other one yeah, What's yeah, yeah. I've got photos of it. Yeah. yeah. Is it any good? No. No. No, it's <laughs> terrible. I think that's why the Minnesota Iceman is much more, well, because Bernard Hillman's looked at it as well, but it looks real, right? Well, if this one, if this Wookie Hole one, and that's obviously, I don't know the name of the circus, uh, mm. traveling show, whatever, I don't know, I can't remember their name, but um, if it was frozen in ice, it would look good. Mm. But but it's not frozen in ice, and it's, so it's... It's obviously, you know, you can see from the, the look of its face, hands, and feet that it, immediately you can tell it's not a real animal. Um, yeah. Yeah. If it was frozen, ice. Yeah. Yeah. Could look, could look quite compelling. Yeah, the freezing in ice makes the um, the skin, you know, because wax or whatever they might be made out of doesn't really look like skin, not properly. You have to be really good at it to make it look look real. Yeah. Okay, we need to move on to cash questions. Yes. Yes. Cash for questions. Um, right, where are we going to start? Where are we going to start with this enormous backlog? <sighs> we should do some okay. old ones. We should do some old ones. So if we see 2016 here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, David Eden, what about that one? 127. 127. Okay. So this is from 2016. Okay. All right. All right. It's a nice and easy softball. So this is from David Eden, as you said. Which would win a fight to the death of a wolverine versus a honey badger? So, Darren. <laughs> wolverine versus honey badger. Okay. Um, let's keep it short and sweet. Uh, get from from what I've seen in terms of um, uh, behavior with other animals... I get the impression that honey badgers, Melivora, Capensis, are genuinely more badass than wolverines. 
They are like they live alongside a big uh, a whole suite of big predators that they do have to tackle on a regular. They have to fight off on a regular basis. Like um, they're often you know tackling lions and hunting dogs and hyenas. Um, hyena, for God's sake, sorry. Drink starting to kick in now. Um, the wolverines obviously do live alongside wolves and bears, but they just don't seem to be as, uh, you know, they're not in as busy an environment. They're often going for days where they don't see other animals. I, and I don't think they're as, I don't want to say honey badgers are aggressive per se, because one to one, they're often quite friendly and pleasant creatures. But, um, but they are nasty. Yeah, I get, I get, yeah, I get the impression they've got more of a kind of, and having seen both species in captivity as well, um, honey badgers are like more active, they're faster, they're sort of more, they seem to be kind of more curious. Their, their intelligence is, is, uh, honey badgers is, is really crazy. Um, there's, there's a case of one male, I forget which, uh, it's a, a South African zoo. He escaped in like 27 different fashions by repeatedly constructing bridges and towers for himself out of paraphernalia in the uh, in the enclosure and dug out and everything whereas wolverines i mean obviously wolverines again smart adaptable and uh, can do a lot of things as well but i i don't think they're at like honey badger level uh so uh, in terms of size there's a big overlap uh, between the size with the but the world's biggest wolverine is bigger than the world's biggest honey badger as in like 25 kilos versus 15 kilos that sort of thing but those are world record holders average for both species for a big male is like 10 11 kilos so they're probably fairly evenly matched but i still think that um honey badgers are more uh, smarter, more agile, more badass, um, and probably genuinely tougher as well. People also say that honey badgers um, have got a particularly thick uh, skin, which may be an adaptation to them tackling stinging insects and the digging they do and everything. Whereas wolverines, they've got a nice thick woolly pelt. Um, they don't, their claws aren't as big also. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I think. Yep, my money's on honey badger. Right. Well, I'm going to have to say wolverines because of that adamantium, <laughs> those adamantium claws they have and the ability to regenerate. And yeah. you do love your superheroes big yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Have you seen Logan yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, neither have I. No. No. I watched the first two X-Men films and they were all right, but I'd, I'd sort of had my fill and that was that. So there you go. But yeah, I, I'm kind of getting the impression they went on a different tangent with with Logan. But right, we'll great, stop, okay, great, stop that. Okay, all right. What are we gonna What are we gonna answer next? Uh, did you find another 2016 one that you were meant mm. to be doing while I was rabbiting on? All these from Donald Esker from Donald 2016. Esker. Okay, let's do that one. One three five. One three five. Okay. After much effort, I've convinced my apartment manager to let me keep a bird. What is the least unintelligent large ratite? <laughs> There's not actually uh, a lot of choices here, are there? Well, uh, hold on. Let's 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 break down the grammar of this question. What is the least unintelligent? Yes. So he's not saying Donald's not saying what's the most unintelligent. No. He's not saying the stupidest. He's saying which is the cleverest. Yes. Because it's the least unintelligent. Yeah. <laughs> right? See, you, you've, you've thought this out. You get it. You get it. Me, I'm... Me, I'm You're not unintelligent. I, <laughs> I'm not least unintelligent. <laughs> <laughs> ah. 
Um, the least unintelligent, so the smartest ratite, uh, is the pretends to know the answer. <laughs> the <laughs> Darwin's rear. <rear. laughs> Good thing is about ratites is there's not many to choose from. Oh, okay. I'm going to pretend that tinamous aren't ratites. Tinamous. Tinamous long considered to be outside ratites. So you would talk of paleonaths consisting of two sister groups, tinamous, which can fly, ratites, which are flightless. Yeah. But annoyingly, tinamous have been shown on pretty good basis to be nested within ratites, which then means you've got you have to invoke multiple independent losses of flight within the birds we call ratites. So tinamous are flighted birds nested within ratites. Specifically, they're they're probably closest to, I think, moa of New Zealand. I think that, oh, God, I've forgotten this already. How can I forget this already? I should know. Tangent, tangent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. so the least unintelligent. Okay, so the dumbest, uh, I think ostriches probably have the, of extant ones, ostriches yeah. have got the, the smallest brains in terms of, like, proportion to overall size mm-hmm. and they're probably also credited with the dumbest bits of behavior like uh, uh, sexually being sexually interested in people and that's crazy and um you know running off cliffs and kicking cars to death and stuff and uh, uh strangling themselves to death on fences and drowning in the rain that kind of stuff these these are all anecdotal, apart from the sexually being attracted to people. So I, I think ostriches are probably the least intelligent and most intelligent. I get the impression it's a rhea, cause, only because I've seen them do the least dumb things and they've got the prettiest eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want a dumb ratite, Donald, uh, get an ostrich. If you want a smart one, get a rhea. Cassowaries and emus are sort of in the middle. Kiwi also in the middle. But um, yeah. yeah, I would suggest for an apartment, like a flat, <laughs> maybe go for one of the smaller ones. Certainly not a cassowary. And an ostrich seems like a bad choice as well. But yeah, you say that, but I say on, that. It's, yeah, it's, it's better to live an interesting life. Mm. is my take on this mm. and um and also in seriousness is any stereotype that we have about animals is never true when you get to know them so even the most dangerous stupid dumbest animal if it's grown up with people and it's your friend and you know virtually anything can be tamed right so you know how people have kept tigers in apartments hasn't yeah. been very good for the tiger no. but nothing bad has happened Nobody died. <laughs> you know, you could have a tame ratite in an apartment. Mm. I wouldn't recommend it. It wouldn't be very kind. But um, Yes, but if you, you were know. going to do it, I'd recommend a smaller one. <laughs> yeah, a kiwi yeah. seems like a better choice well, than yeah. an ostrich. Yeah, maybe. Maybe <laughs> yeah. you say that. <laughs> <laughs> Says me. It's just like my opinion, man. You and your newfangled... <laughs> okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Um, okay, so we should do another 2016 one. Donald Iska has other questions. Um, yeah, maybe we should do... No, no, we'll do this one from May. That's May a name, not the month. Month. So that's 136. 
It's just off the screen. How I hate Google Docs. We will. I I'm love- just saying to Donald. Yeah, sorry. We Donald. We will get back to other questions, but we'll shake it up a little bit, huh? Okay. Yeah. Oh well, actually, this is only relevant if you've seen the TV show Sanctuary. Have you seen the TV show Sanctuary? No, I didn't you know. Was such so a- okay. Well, we can't. Of you? No. Mm. So, May, sorry, we haven't seen it, so we can't really an- answer the question until do we, someone gets around to answering it. Yeah, well, it, well, we do like to give people their money's worth, so we'll check that out and get back to you. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, right. So this one's from January. Oh, no, you, you don't want to answer that one this time. Well, let's say we'll come back to this one as well. Yeah. So thank you, Gerald, Gerald Bannon, Bannon. for an interesting yeah. question on Uruk. Um, we'll come back to that. Need to give that some proper, yeah, uh, yeah proper time and research. Uh, okay. It would have been good to arrange these by date so that yeah. we can get to Yeah, people's. wouldn't it, John? Christ. Well, the problem is that if we arrange by date, we lose other things about the information. Uh, okay. What one do you want to do? Will Goring, one three eight. Okay, one three eight. Cool. Oh, I didn't put a date on that, but yes. God's sake. Okay. Please discuss thrombic catalysm in Bufo. Okay. Well, every now and again, a toad of the genus Bufo, and in particular the European or Eurasian species Bufo Bufo, ingests a large number of wood ants and the build-up of formic acid in the toad's stomach causes a quite painful acid reflux, which the toad um, responds to by uh, building up a large plug of mucus in the throat region. And um, the frogs, uh, toads even, the um, frog toad, what's the difference? That's an interesting subject. Um, They flip on their backs and arch their backs in what's in other species called an unken reflex to do with displaying the vivid colours on the belly which these animals don't have, whatever. Maybe maybe this is how this evolved. And they open their mouths really wide and close their eyes and they like wriggle like this in this kind of uh, cataclysmic state <laughs> and um, they're trying to dislodge this mucus uh, plug and uh, sometimes they die. Sometimes they uh, it fires out of their mouth uh, in what's called a uh, thrombic cascade and um, and it's like really amazing because it's like this upside down toad rocket that fires this plug of mucus out and uh, then they t- <laughs> okay good and there's, and, there's, and there's one technical paper on this and um, it was written by a uh, amphibian worker called uh P.D. Dykeman, and um, I wrote a long series of articles about toads and had no reason whatsoever to mention any of this stuff because what you know you might just say in passing toads eat toxic ants because a big an interesting thing about toads is they regularly eat toxic insects and people aren't sure how they cope with it there are two hypotheses invoked to explain how they cope with it one is that do they ingest like soil because people have seen toads ingesting soil. And the other one is that they produce this mucus plug and undergo this thrombic catalysm 
if any. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, I, I, so the answer is they kind of don't sometimes die. Yeah, <laughs> but I didn't have any reason to mention any of this, and I got a, a really angry email from the author of this paper saying, um, why didn't you cite my work? I'm really angry you didn't cite my work. I demand you cite my work, and if you don't cite it, I will pursue legal action or something crazy like that, and they uh-huh. and had a, a okay. full-on you know, angry rant about it. Yeah, and, um, yeah because that's, that's definitely thing to do isn't it when people don't cite your work it's to, it's to sue them yeah and the, the paper was published in like the early 70s in some obscure european herpetological journal well to darren me, darren trouble seriously Man. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go and i don't even think it's named properly i mean what the hell is a, is, is catalysm even a word i've heard of cataclysm Catalysm, un- probably. Catal- in the paper, it's titled Catalysm. I, uh, yeah. Well, there you go. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> Do you think that does enough um, well, justifications? I'm not sure how much we can more we can say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, thanks, Will, for the question, as always. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. It's kind of fascinating, but... It's just a thing that happens. So I've been collecting dead toads, uh-huh. uh, which have died. Do you been, think any of died. them have died yeah, doing and this? That, well, that's the thing. Some of them look like they died upside down, like with their mouths open. And, you know, had they died following ant poisoning and mucus blockage in the throat? And uh, is this actually cases of thrombic catalysm I've encountered myself? I, I don't know, and I don't know how to test that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of it is kind of fascinating when people ask how animals do dangerous things and survive and you realize well sometimes they don't it's really dangerous <laughs> it's really dangerous and they die well yeah evolution baby <laughs> yeah yeah <clears throat> um okay let's get let's do another donald esker one huh all right yep and then we'll do this one from kai casper Okie dokie. So which which Donald Esker one do you want to do? Well, I don't know because it's not easy for me to scroll up and down in Google Docs. So you read it and give me a number. Um, it's... I'm, I can see the 134. Yeah, okay. yeah, let's do 134. Okay. If you have to choose between two trees, morphological and molecular, which do you tend to trust? So a complication... This is very specific. This feels mm. like he's got something in mind here. The morphological mm. tree seems robust but doesn't fit with the modern distribution. The molecular tree fits with the modern distribution but not the morphology. Which do you trust? Uh, my gut feeling uh, is molecular. Um, only be- well, only because I mean you, you could you could talk about this at great length. So let's keep it real brief. Um, I, I kind of feel that morphological. Um, sorry, I'm boring you. <laughs> Keeping you up, John. Uh, I, I kind of feel that that morphology-based analyses are more um, prone to. Uh, I can't think of the right word, but but it depends very much on what you specifically, what humans specifically choose to pick and analyze. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
Whereas molecular data is again, you know, you could you could to a degree make a similar argument because people are often targeting specific genes, right? Obviously, there are whole genome analyses, but molecular analyses do are often based on one or two genes. But there is sort of this is very, this is very arm wavy. My apologies, but it's almost like it's it seems to be more the case, and obviously we're only talking about phylogenies involving extant or recently extinct taxa. Um, molecular studies, it seems more like we've got a bunch of data. You scoop up like a couple of handfuls of data, data muck. You don't, <laughs> you don't know which way it's going to go. You throw it in the machine. Pff, let's see what result comes out. Oh, my God, it's that result. Wow, I didn't think that. Whereas with a morphology-based analysis, you're looking at it thinking, hmm, hmm, Kessel-Quantlis looks to me more like Tapajara than it does like Tyranodon. So I'm going to code. I'm going to choose that character and that character. It seems to me that morphology-based stuff is more, t- is more kind of targeted am i making any sense whatsoever do you kind of see what i'm trying to explain yeah you're saying that morphology is not a proper random sample of traits yeah uh, and 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 and, sorry let me just say one more thing on that and and uh, morphology based analyses are very rarely comprehensive uh you look at most groups of things, most groups of animals, obviously we're not talking about non-animals, but um, as in plants and whatever, um, morphology-based analyses, people think it's good when they're coding for 30, 40, 50, or 100 characters. They think that's good. Whereas in actual fact, if you look at how many things you can code in an organism like a vertebrate, oh my God, there's like thousands of things you potentially can code. There are studies, phylogenetic studies of extant mammals, where there are like 2,000 morphological characters, you know, involving pillage and tongue anatomy and, you know, mm-hmm. all, all features of skin and eyes and brain anatomy and whatnot. And even that is like, it's very hard to be sure that you're being comprehensive enough. So, yeah. I interrupted you. Sorry. Uh, no. Well, I, yeah. What I say is that, yeah, morphological studies you're meant to get around the bias in sampling by having as many as you can possibly get off, right? Off the specimens. So, yeah, the more not... The, you know, if, with fossil things, it's somewhat better because you don't have thousands of traits, probably. Well, you might have can, close can to... Have. Yeah, but it might be tricky. But anyway, you're probably, you're probably getting to the stage where it's difficult to pick and choose, right? You're not biasing yourself too much because you're, I don't know how many traits the modern ones have, but it's, it's hundreds, right? Um, Andrea Cow, our good friend, he's, um, he's working with data sets of, I think, I think over a thousand characters. Okay, there you uh, go. Apologies right, so- if I'm wrong, Andrea. Yeah, so but you're probably getting to the stage where you're not biasing yourself too much by character he, selection he because then gets, you've got so many. He then gets accused of atomizing character states, yeah. Yeah. which is like, well, what are you supposed to do? I mean, well, you don't know. This is the thing that bugs me. People kind of think they know what the important characters are. So we only need to code the skull because we know that's the bit that evolves the most. Really? <laughs> really? What about – you could say that about any aspect of anatomy. I mean, couldn't it be that the skull is the most plastic, least useful thing in phylogenies because it's – you know, there's only so many solutions you can have to – Yeah, and it adapts, to, it adapts very quickly to whatever yeah. you're doing and therefore you get a whole heap of convergence and all that sort of stuff, yeah. yeah. And um, you could say the same about anything. Yes. Now, the reason I can't answer this question is because I don't understand how molecular phylogeny works. I mean, obviously, I have this sort of vague notion, but I don't really understand the ins and outs of it. And 
I've heard not much some to criticisms <laughs> of it that actually it's, but like it's I don't phonetic because it's all distance based is like the commonest criticism, and it kind of is. It's just you know some people even say it's phonetic because all you're doing is is you know chucking remains you know chucking data from like oh god I'm not going to bother giving an example but um yeah yeah you're just grouping things together on the basis of similarity and then the one response to that is that yeah but similarity doesn't necessarily mean actual oh god no, sorry I'm going to stop there because I'm just going to yeah the difference <laughs> between phonetics and phylogenetics yes um so yeah I don't know I don't know uh, yeah I can't answer that I think it probably depends also on which morphological tree you're looking at and which molecular one because I'm sure there are crap molecular studies out there that are far worse than the really good morphological studies so yeah so there are there are some really interesting papers that basically show that um, if you trust the if you trust the molecular tree you get a really different if you trust molecular results you get a very different tree from the one generated on um, anatomy alone and they can't both be right nope um and in some cases there's good reasons to think that either one is significantly flawed but that doesn't mean the other one isn't flawed as well yeah increasingly um people are using total evidence so you try and chuck in as much evidence as you should and remember also that evolution doesn't just affect isn't just all about genetics and isn't just about anatomy there's you know behavior and ecology and physiology and a whole bunch of other things as well you know it's like how how do we know which of these things are more important we we don't so we should try and include everything so although as a generalization in living animals i do think that molecular analyses are in general uh, more reliable for reasons i've sort of airily alluded to i think you should be trying to combine as much data as you can yeah, sure. Yeah, it's the problem is we don't know how to weight any of that. And there you mm. go. But, but what you really want to see is that once you get more and more information, the trees start to converge. That would be nice, yep. right? So the better the morphological analysis and the better the molecular analysis, the closer the trees get to each other. Which, which hope they have. that's the direction yeah. things go in. So there's, so there's a bunch of groups... Let's just stick to tetrapods here, but there's a there's a bunch of animals where people have found the molecular results were initially a real shock compared to what people had thought on the basis of anatomy. A classic example is Afrotheria. Um, molecular, sorry, morphological analyses had not found um, tenrex, um, golden moles, and sengis to group with uh, sirenians, proboscideans, etc. But when the molecular results from different groups, from different research groups, kept on finding this as a valid signal, it, it made the morphological people go back to the morphological data set and say, is there stuff we've missed? And there was. There's hmm. tons of stuff they hadn't, they hadn't been coded before. Vertebral characters and dental eruption ontogeny characters, which obviously are both quite specialised areas yeah and um once they did incorporate that stuff it's like no there is actually a morphological signal here and they'd missed it before and now they are finding on morphology basis on them on a morphological basis alone they're finding some support for some of these clades obviously it's much stronger when you combine molecular and morphological but yeah yeah I've, yeah 
Yeah, I think it's one thing's worth mentioning is that this is not just limited by people thinking it up or coding characters. Um, computers, uh, cladistic analysis is actually a relatively um, computationally expensive thing to do, and for a, and it's also um, I'll probably use the wrong term, but it's it's vaguely log- logarithmic in that the more characters you put in, it takes that much longer to do the analysis, and therefore. You know, it, it was difficult. Very, <laughs> you probably need a supercomputer back in the '90s to do a thousand-character analysis, right? That would just be something that was out of reach of a lot of biologists doing the sorts of work that they do. I mean, I'm sure you could do it occasionally, but this is, yeah. So, mm. the technology is actually in moving along, so that these things are getting better all the time. And certainly over the last few years, it's probably got to the stage where this isn't a huge consideration. But, yeah. So that's a reason why a lot of the cladistic analyses back in the 90s probably weren't that huge in terms of characters, right? That it was, in many ways, not feasible. It wasn't well, just the work were, yeah. coding them. It was also just analyzing the results and things like this, right? And that's yeah, why yeah, yeah. there's a lot of catch-up work to be done on this sort of stuff. <laughs> So to start with, people are hand hacking trees and literally, you know, doing their parsimony by hand. <laughs> yeah. So, and and then then once you've got proper computers that allow you to like mechanical computers or human computers to do this, it takes like two days for the, the computer to think about it. You have to have a de- you have to have a dedicated phylogenetics uh, desktop running in your lab. Running yeah. PowerPoint, whatever, uh, and it would take a couple of days for it to turn out tree. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, how things have changed. So. Well, the big ones are probably still taking a while, even on fairly fast computers. I'd bet. Um, I don't know. I haven't talked to anyone about it recently, and well, I certainly haven't done it. Yeah, it depends how many, how many um, you know, data runs you let it do, how many trees yeah. you let, because because there are studies that generate like a hundred million most parsimonious trees, <laughs> and it's still running. So I think we'll stop it after two days of thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, that's the answer. We don't. You you yeah. say molecular, I say I've got no idea because I don't really know how molecular trees work. So we do this one by Kai Casper. Give me a number. One, three, two. Stupid Google documents. I hate it so much. One, three, two. Come on up the screen. Oh yes, this is a this is a doozy. Okay. As they say. Oh, and it's gone off the screen. Jesus Christ. Okay, go on then. How do you say this? Cassid? 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 Okay, please discuss the aquatic caseid hypothesis that was recently put forward by Lamberts. Is that real? Is that a typo? Lamberts? With a Z on the end? Uh, Let me just double check because I've actually got the paper to hand. Lamberts and colleagues. Convincing or not, what else could be said about the anatomy and life appearance of caseids? Yeah, it's Marcus Lamberts. Oh, sorry, did I say this is from Kai Casper? Who... You said long time cash for questioner. Yeah, and and uh, a champion at uh, TetsuCon. Uh, what did he win? Was it the quiz he won? No, he didn't. He win building a Cetacosaurus. Ah, okay. Is that right? Oh, yeah. oh, 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 wow, sorry, should... Kai. John's forgotten you. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. 
Kidding, I never forget. I never, never forget think. anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Convincing? No. Not convincing. No. Okay. So this paper, really interesting, and I so wish it was true. Um, they said the authors said basically for two reasons. They they said they thought that cassiids. Uh, for those who don't know, a group of steb mammals, non-mammalian synapsids, uh, famous for the biggest ones are really quite large, up to like five meters long, long-tailed bulky bodies, proportionally small heads with distinctive incisive form protruding teeth, and really giant hands in Cotylorhynchus and uh, uh, Cassia. Is it Cassia? Ah, oh, damn it. Cassia, Cassia, such a long time. Well, Cotylorhynchus is the famous one that's got the giant hands. Yeah. Um, Giant, like they look like they they look like they are like um, arid, adapted, uh, digging herbivores. But yeah. um, you kind of skipped are, over the small head thing. They've got teeny weeny tiny little heads, unbelievably you know, proportionally, small. Proportionally, yeah, you, said really proportion, small heads. you said proportionally really small, but like it deserves more emphasis than that. It looks like, like they almost don't have a head. Okay, and they've got a really short neck as well. Yeah, <laughs> almost. The they're really thing, yeah. bizarre. They're, they're among the most bizarre-looking animals, aren't they? Really, they're very, so, very strange-looking things. Yeah, these authors said that um, they've that this group of synapsids have got a uh, a bone histology. Um, oh, what is it called? They there's this kind of like particular style of very. Uh, Sort of cavity filled, Harvison, uh, uh, Harvison canals and that sort of stuff. No, is it Harvesian? Harvesian. Yeah. Um, oh, oste- not osteoporotic. Oh, mate. No, I, I, I do. I do mean. I mean osteoporotic. Oste- like osteoporotic um, limb morphology, which uh, I think means that there's like. Yeah, a really thin outer layer of bone and, um, yeah, like sort of big open chambers. Not Nothing to do with pneumaticity. I mean, like um, big oh, – God's sake, okay, I really should have boned up on this. Okay, so they, basically they say that this particular kind of bone histology is associated with uh, marine aquatic vertebrates. Mm-hmm. And they say the fact that we've got it in these stem mammals indicates that maybe they're like spending all their time floating and feeding in water. They say the body shape of these things, like big rotund uh, bodies, they say that kind of looks not a million miles away from something like Cyrenians, manatees and dugongs, which could be consistent with that lifestyle. And they also say that um, the really small heads and really short necks of these animals means that if you try and work out how much they can bend down, they say that they can't reach the ground with their mouths and therefore they couldn't drink. Mm-hmm. So they say on the basis of these three pieces of evidence, um, it indicates that they probably are, um, yeah, aquatic. And um, wow, interesting. And their, their paper includes like a really nice reconstruction of these things living like uh, stem mammalian kind of shallow water manatees. Um my, my first thought on that was, well, f- first of all, the drinking thing is that's a non-starter. That's erroneous because um, if you're a, a terrestrial tetrapod and you can't drink from the ground, big deal. There's a whole bunch of desert-adapted um, tetrapods that don't drink 
at all. Literally, mm-hmm. never drink their entire lives. Um, there's also others that do crazy things to get water. Like you could, you could literally dive into a pool, and you know you don't have to reach down with your mouth. You go into water every now and again and, and drink, even if you can't bend your neck down. And you can also do. You know, there's animals that have got um, some of the Australian desert-dwelling agamids mm-hmm. and various other lizards. They've got like ducks and things, which means that capillary action across their skin allows them to like press their belly onto wet sand, and actually water is. Um, carried you know across the epidermis um to, to, to the mouth there are also animals that believe it or not get their water not only from their food but also by breathing deeply at night and um uh, breathing in um uh, moisture uh, humid air yeah some dew. desert dwelling yeah well yeah. dew is when it's condensed on the ground right but um there are desert dwelling antelopes that get a significant a significant amount of the water they need through breathing in humid uh, at night, which uh, is crazy, but there you go. Nature is crazy. Um, so the drinking thing, I don't think that's a good reason for you thinking that they're aquatic. As for the osteoporotic bone texture thing, well, the animals that have got that kind of bone texture are all... So, uh, I'm going here from a critique that I heard from... really well-known stem mammal worker. Oh, my God. Why have I forgotten his name? Christian Camera. Christian Camera, um, who he's he's well-known as the stem mammal person who's traveled the world and seen all the stem mammals. He's Mm -hmm. extraordinarily experienced on all of these things. And he's a pretty good guy, and he seems to know what he's talking about, and he's incredibly prolific worker publishes a couple of papers a month on these animals and um he said that the uh, aquatic cassayed um idea was about as likely as the aquatic ape hypothesis <laughs> which uh, which for those of you who don't get that that's really damning because the aquatic ape the aah uh, is a uh, kind of crazy unreliable science um and um, yeah, the the osteoporotic bone texture thing that's linked with I think it's like only seen in sort of open ocean aquatic animals, not those that would be lounging in sort of shallow water pools and rivers in arid environments. Because we already have you know quite some good idea of where these animals lived. Yeah. There's a there's like a bunch of taxa. There's like you know sort of twelve taxa, and uh, they they all come from sort of fairly arid, fully terrestrial environments. They're not on the coast or living in deltas or whatever. So um, on the basis of those two pieces of evidence, um, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with Christian and think that it's not as, uh, yeah, sadly it's not as not as cool as, as it uh, could be. But uh, I kind of wish it was true. It's such a good idea. Um, and the body shape thing, yeah, yeah, they've, you could kind of say they've got like a weird broad, rotund, manatee-like body shape. But, you know, there are weird big terrestrial animals that are shaped like that as well. I mean, there are desert-dwelling lizards like the Euromastixians, Euromastix, spiny-tailed mastigias and kin, that if you supersize them by like 100, they'd be shaped like this. They'd look stupid and broad and chubby. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So that's so. So I think I think it's a fun idea. I wish it were true, but... I don't think the evidence they've presented is compelling. 
Mm. There you go. Unconvinced. What was the question? Please Convincing discuss. or not? Convincing. Not. There we go. Question not. answered. And what else could be said about the anatomy and life appearance? Uh, there's actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, Kai, there's a couple of old Tetsu articles specifically on that group. Um, so if you Google my name and Cassiid or Cotolorincus or something, you should find them. And I said a lot of the stuff that I think I've, I've repeated here, that um, they are terrestrial adapted. It looks like they're really proficient diggers and they seem to be high, um, uh, high fiber herbivores so browsing on um yeah like uh or tree ferns and whatever other plants are available to them in uh that time and place because uh yeah yeah okay i googled cassiad's nash and we get an article from 2007 survivors diggers herbivores first giant terrestrial vertebrates the cassiads or Cassiads, I think I've used both pronunciations this time. And the very first picture is the same one used in the Lambert set out paper provided by Matt Wadel because it's such a cool picture. Um, and um, yeah, they're not all giant. There's a bunch that are like a meter long. Um, small skull, spatulate teeth, massive broad bodies. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I, yeah, I, I don't want to start reading out my own blog post, but uh, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that'll do, yeah? That'll do. That'll do, Darren. That'll do. <laughs> One of my favourite films. <laughs> right. Um, we should we do we another cash for question or should we actually wrap it up for this one? We, because we're at an hour we, and a half. Yeah, can we take a break? Uh, let's wrap it up, take a break. Yeah. And this drinking has gotten to my bladder. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> wrap it up yeah. well I hope you enjoyed episode 60 mm. of the world famous Ted Rodsology podcast we haven't discussed Tezucon we'll do that in the next episode well there's a lot of other stuff we haven't discussed thank yeah. you to our cash for questioners there's yep. a crap ton of news we need to talk about um, dinosaurs in the wild a yeah. new book I've just finished got to talk about those next episode yeah so, are we wrapping up? We're wrapping up, yeah. Go on, you wrap up first then. Um, okay, yeah. I'm uh, the John Conway on Twitter. And I have a website. It's johnconway.co. And that's it. Um, I blog at Tetchbot Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. And <laughs> uh, I've written recently about elephant seals, microsaurs, the 2017 Amphibian Conservation Research Symposium, research on um, Neoveneta, lizards, frogs, etc., etc. Um, I currently, well, I tweet at... Turn round, Chewbacca. I can't see. Oh, they've encased him in carbonite. He should be quite well protected, if he survives the freezing process, that is. At... Tet <laughs> Zoo... Um, if you want to listen to the podcast, go to. No, that doesn't work if they're listening to the podcast now. Zoo.com. And, um, that about wraps it up. That 
I think from both of us was probably the worst wrap up ever. I did like your Star Wars quote, but otherwise, pretty lackluster. <laughs>